Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, folks. This is Cecily Nipper welcoming you to this exciting session with Microsoft. This will be a 90-minute video presentation. You may not see the video as the interpreter is on screen. However, we can all hear it. And Monica will give the continuing education code now. And then at the end, at exactly when it ends, there will be no time for questions because this is a 90-minute session and we want you to be able to get to the next call. Uh, okay. Go ahead, Monica. So the starting CEU code is 05983. Again, the CEU code is 05983. Thank you. And I'll turn it over to Rylan. Hi, everyone. This is Rylan Rogers. I'm the Disability Policy Advisor at Microsoft. Really excited to be with you today and again tomorrow virtually. And looking forward to seeing many of you in person in Chicago uh, just next week. Um, we're going to kick off the conversation with a discussion of AI um, led by our Chief Accessibility Lead Evangelist, Hector Mento, and um, really hoping to continue the conversation across the company and get your feedback on what's happening and what's coming next in this exciting world. And I think I want to turn it over to Brad to share Hector's content. Hello, my name is Hector Minto. I'm the Lead Accessibility Evangelist here at Microsoft. My pronouns are he, him. I'm a white male in his 40s with a graying beard, bald head and glasses. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence and accessibility. But before I do that, maybe I could just start with sharing another of my roles. I work for the UK government as the Disability and Access Ambassador for the tech sector. And I join approximately 18 or 19 other ambassadors who work for their sectors across retail, across uh, travel, transport, tourism, uh, all sorts of industries where they're looking at two challenges. How do we employ people with disabilities with confidence across all industries? And what do we need to do to make sure that we bring disability talent into each industry? And also, how do we provide services and experiences within those industries that are inclusive of people with disabilities? And of course, how can we not talk about that topic without talking about the impact that artificial intelligence is going to have. We know that everybody is out there talking about AI at the moment, and the main things that they're talking about are how to innovate experiences, but also what's the impact going to be on jobs. And I think at Microsoft over the last six or seven years that I've been here, this has been a constant conversation that we have. How do we make sure that we get people with disabilities included in the design of products and processes, but also how do we make sure that we share that journey with organizations of all sizes, all industries, to make sure that we can drive global impact? The program that I run is called GCAP. It essentially works with our field, our commercial organization around the world, to build their confidence to go and have a conversation about disability and inclusion. And when we think about that, 
It's super important that we also make sure that we're having it woven into some of those other conversations they're already having. And I think AI is going to be one of those conversations that everyone's going to be having over the next few years. So over the next hour or so, I'd like to maybe help you to understand how we think about this, but also how we think about all aspects of it, not just the technology, but also the regulation, the data sets that artificial intelligence sits on, etc. Before we get started, of course, it's important that you understand how Microsoft thinks about accessibility. And so when we talk to our uh, customers, our field organization, we make sure that people understand that this is over a billion people with a disability, that when you design for disability in mind, you don't just impact people who have a permanent disability, but you also design for people who have situational or temporary disabilities. And then we also make sure that every organization is on a journey to understand the role that it is going to play in building accessible digital experiences. We've got to make sure that every bank, every government service, every retail organization, every healthcare body, as it thinks about digital transformation, we've got to make sure that they're also including people with disabilities and taking their accessibility responsibilities seriously. We've also got to ensure that organizations are designing across the whole scope of disability vision, hearing, neurodiversity, mental health, mobility, speech, and more. You can't just design to include a proportion of people with disabilities in society. We've got to holistically design. Now, looking back on my career at Microsoft, I think I joined at a really important time. I remember I was in my office in Oxford and I was, I was watching the president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, give a speech in Dublin. It was a speech to launch something called the Cloud for Global Good. And the general challenge that was being seen out there at the time was that organizations were concerned about this move to the cloud, the concern about where data was sitting, the, the, the concern about digital transformation having an impact on people's jobs when cloud technologies were implemented. And I remember very clearly him putting a picture of the Flatiron building in New York up on, uh, up on this huge stage and encouraging people to see that, the, uh, that there were horses in New York City and to think about the jobs of the blacksmiths working within New York City and how they were going to be impacted by the coming of the steam engine, uh, the combustion engine, sorry, and the steam engine, uh, but the combustion engine at the time, making sure that they were understanding that, you know, yes, jobs were going to be impacted, but there were different jobs coming down the track. And I think that's also true for where we sit right now. Uh, artificial intelligence is definitely going to do things in terms of what humans are able to do. Uh, it's going to make decisions uh, out there and therefore it's going to impact some jobs. But what we have to make sure we're doing is recognizing the next stage of employment. What are the future jobs? What do they look like? Brad Smith was very clear at the time. In fact, he said, although cloud computing already offers significant accessibility opportunities, People with disabilities are often the last to gain access to the benefits of technology-based innovation. This was a call to action for organizations to start looking at this new technology and making sure they were designing around a set of users who essentially were not being included currently in the way that services were provided. So this pivot from risk to opportunity is something that I think we've, we, we, we regularly have a conversation about. As we move into this next generation of artificial intelligence, 
everybody is having that perhaps remote water cooler moment uh, talking about generative AI. What is the impact of chat GPT going to be on education, on service jobs, etc.? Brad Smith is again talking to how do we make sure that organisations are governing AI principles and making sure that we're building the tools that we want to see, not just what the technology can do, but what the technology should do. And I, as I think about how I joined Microsoft at this time, I also think about my, my role at Microsoft and the fact that we were able to bring together the voices of disabled people's organisations, governments, major organisations, major commercial organisations around the world and trade bodies. Again, we think this is a super important time to make sure that the voice of disability is included in the decisions that are being made out there in society as we see it. Uh, every time that we see this race to the next big thing, we've got to be slowing down a moment to make sure we understand that there are going to be impacts out there and the impact on the lives of people with disabilities, we need to make sure is innovation and net new experiences. And we're also thinking about making sure that people with disabilities are included in those future jobs and influencing those products, those services, those experiences that are designed. I think it's also worth noting that there is this mainstream race going on to the next bit of technology and the rate of change, the pace of change is changing. Every time an industrial revolution comes, when we think about the printing press through to the steam engines, to the telegraph and the telephone, uh, what's, what, what it sparks is innovation and investment. Uh, and it's all only getting quicker and quicker and quicker through flight, through to PCs, through to the internet, the smartphone, the cloud, artificial intelligence. All the time that we're seeing uh, these new technologies land, the rate of change and the rate of investment and the growth of GDP that's driven through these new technologies means that the, the, the rate of change, the pace is accelerating. Pace should always be a concern to us in the accessibility space because when people run too quickly, we often forget the impact that it's going to have on the lives of people. Uh, and that includes, of course, people with disabilities. And so we are very clear that accessibility needs to be of equal concern as we think about this, this, this next generation of technologies that are coming through. We have principles around AI and accessibility, and they're ones that we have been really talking about for some time now. Uh, I'm going to talk in a moment about AI that already exists in Microsoft products. But as we coach our product development teams, as we talk about AI and we talk about responsible AI, the principles that we have at Microsoft, we need to make sure that when we talk about disability and artificial intelligence, things have to be rigorously accessible. Experiences have to be rigorously accessible. You can't forget about the basic building blocks of what makes something screen reader compatible, what alt text is, whether labels are readable. We've got to make sure that that rigor and that knowledge of how to build accessible experiences is maintained. The other thing we know and that we've learned is that the data that AI is built on needs to be representative of the real lived experiences of people with disabilities. Uh, as tools are built and the data sets that they sit on uh, are designed, if the voice of disability and the experience, the lived experience of disability is not in that data, then of course it will lead to exclusion. And then we must make sure that we're constantly talking about the innovation opportunity. There are new experiences that are coming down the tracks that 
are going to really change the lives of people with disabilities. Uh, and we need to capture that. We need to see accessibility as an innovation space. We need to ensure that across all organisations, not just the tech sector, all organisations building their net new experiences uh, using technology are thinking about the innovation opportunity to include people with disabilities and then thinking back to those inclusive design principles, a much larger set of users. When we design for people with disabilities, we design for a much larger audience of people. All of this sits on the, on the fundamentals of the team that we work on at Microsoft, uh, the Technology for Fundamental Rights team. Accessibility sits within TFR at Microsoft. And as we think about our approach to disability, we recognize very clearly that we are never going to do this ourselves. This is going to require partnership with many, many different types of organizations. And those many different types of organizations will cover a number of different aspects. The technology designers, we make, must make sure that we're educating technology designers to understand how to develop inclusively designed technologies. The people and the representation within Microsoft and, of course, within our partner networks, within the tech sector more widely and within all industries influencing the design of future systems, but making sure that all the work that we do on skilling and the hiring of people with disabilities, that we share that knowledge yeah, to help other organisations on their journey. Policy is a critically important space that we spend our time with organisations developing policies around accessible technologies, but also we like to think that we uh, spend time with organizations who are looking at a wider range of policies. Uh, of course, as Microsoft, we, we, will, we will meet many of these groups and making sure that we're advocating for accessibility to be, a, to be something that many, many different types of organizations are thinking about, from skilling to employment to tech sector policy to procurement. The, the representation and the, the inclusion of people with disabilities in that policy work is, is critical. And then, of course, just general partnership with disabled people's organisations, the disability community more widely uh, to make sure that we're listening to the voice and partnering with organisations across all aspects of everything that we do from policy work through people on hiring and, of course, innovation. As this team, we operate what's called a hub and spoke model. Uh, so essentially, we uh, have expertise within our core accessibility team that works with all other parts of the business to take them forward on their journey. As Microsoft, we train 220,000 employees on disability, the tools that people with disabilities use, and how to build accessible experiences. Uh, this has absolutely powered us up in terms of having much more regular conversations about disability and accessibility in the organisation, which has led to people doing their part for whichever part of the business they work in. We also think this model of what does a good accessibility team look like and what impact does it have on organisations is one that we want to share. And as part of the work that I do with our field organisations, I can reassure you that we're having conversations with many, many more organisations, many of the world's largest employers to help them understand how to spin up a programme like this to drive the change they want to see within their own industry or their own business. So turning back to AI, uh, I think it's useful maybe to, to, to share that from the very top of Microsoft, from Satya Nadella, our CEO, uh, 
we we've been talking about artificial intelligence and the impact on the lives of people with disabilities for some time, but we kept, caught this quote from the uh, Ability Summit in 2020 when Satya Nadella said, broadly speaking, I think some of the AI technologies that we have, especially as increasingly getting better at being able to even combine speech, vision and text and build some of these large scale AI models, I think we will have increasingly bigger and bigger breakthroughs. Uh, this was a good prediction, <laughs> uh, but I think what I'd like to share just in terms of how I interpret that quote, speech, vision, text, the ways that we interact with technologies are of course changing and we've got to leverage those technologies that have been with us for some time. But as these large scale AI models start to come out, we're going to see bigger and bigger breakthroughs. And this turns to the opportunity and the risk that we see moving forward about uh, ChatGPT, OpenAI, large, large language models are going to drive even faster innovation uh, as people started to understand the impact that AI can have. So we're going to see bigger breakthroughs. I turn back to those fundamental principles. We've got to make sure that the voice of disability is resonating through that work to make sure that people are routinely including people with disabilities in the, in the design and the delivery of these experiences. So I just want to quickly talk about some terminology here. Uh, you're going to hear me talk perhaps a little bit about Azure. Uh, Azure, Azure, people say it different ways, different parts of the world, but that lovely hue of blue, Azure, same as the, uh, the sea and the sky, uh, is the Microsoft Cloud. Uh, this is a product name for the Microsoft Cloud. And I just think it's worth just putting this terminology out there that as you hear me talking about Azure delivered services or Azure development, uh, what we mean is when we are using technology in the cloud, leveraging the compute power of cloud computing to deliver experiences, including artificial intelligence. Um, our Azure model uh, essentially breaks down into the Azure services uh, that we use how we're applying Azure to our productivity suites. So think about Teams, Microsoft 365, Windows. How can we use Azure for things like app innovation? Can we start to look at net new experiences that are leveraging some of those cognitive services that are built into Azure? Within Azure, there is, of course, the cloud stored data. And how are we making that data inclusive? So how, you know, when we think about accessibility and artificial intelligence, what is that, you know, how inclusive is the data that these tools uh, are, are leveraging? And then, of course, when we think about generative AI, when we think about how open AI is going to be available through Azure now, are we making sure that uh, we're talking about how that can be applied to accessibility? So this is a bit of a, a sneak preview in terms of some of the things that I'll be talking about in the next uh, in the next hour. Let's talk about technology and humans. I think it's important to also understand that the, the, the wave of technology change is happening. And every time that we see technology move to the next thing, from desktops through to laptops, maybe to the application of technology or very, very technical phones, the tablet opportunity, the adoption of voice in tech, every time that has happened, we have seen more inclusion of people with disabilities, 
but we again have also seen potential exclusion. Uh, I'm still of the age, or I'm of the age uh, where I remember using Control Escape on my keyboard uh, to open up my <laughs> open up my, my my menu. I've been doing that for many many years. Um, and yet when I see some of the generation coming through and I, and I press control escape or I talk to them about it, they have absolutely no idea about it. But the key presses that we embedded within computing experiences all the way back in the 80s and the 90s, uh, even before the mouse came to us, those fundamental building blocks that we put in place still empower us with accessibility. So those keystrokes still need to remain in the products that we build. We don't forget about the generation before as we move through to the next set of technologies. And this has been something actually that I think the tech sector has been relatively good at. Uh, it actually still amazes me today that I can press Alt-I-T-D and put the time and date into a Word document. And I've been able to consistently do that as a lived experience since the 80s. Uh, that's pretty amazing. Even though the form factor has changed, the, connect, the, the programs have changed, the way the mainstream adopts those programs, potentially they've moved away from keystrokes a little bit, uh, but we still maintain that level of accessibility in the experiences that we drive. And we recognize the inclusion that, 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 that heritage, you know, legacy technology or heritage technology, maybe to call it that, yeah, maybe making sure that this generation that are designing the next set of experiences recognize the importance of it uh, is, is, is something that we, we obviously need to continue to do. Interestingly, the next thing is going to be different ways of interacting beyond the, the physical form factor. So when we think about the experiences that we've been driving around our products over the last number of years, uh, you'll see that we've started to use Azure, Cognitive Services in Azure, to drive natural language interaction. I'll give you some examples in a moment. Uh, speech recognition has become uh, very important and a very kind of mainstream experience. And of course, image recognition has become possible with increasing amounts of accuracy. Essentially, all of these uh, experiences are driven from the cloud and drive designers to design net new experiences. When we think about Azure, however, we have to see where those cognitive services sit within the wider uh, topic of what is Azure AI. So from the bottom up, we essentially have this AI infrastructure, the, the, the cloud servers around the world, uh, the, 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 the hardware with that compute power that can deliver this amazing technology. The machine learning platform is then the next layer, and that essentially gives us, gives us the, 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 the processing the cognitive power essentially of the of the cloud service and then we packet these cognitive services for people to access so above that we have vision tools speech tools language tools decision making capability we call these cognitive services and they are available to developers to take those data sets to take that experience and to apply it to the technologies that they are building and then we find that the businesses around the world and developers around the world want to essentially template these experiences. So from a chatbot service through to a cognitive search of data using natural language, recognizing forms using machine learning to understand what a form looks like to automate form recognition, 
video indexing to add captions to, to, to provide descriptions to uh, analyze sentiment. This is another prepacked tool. Our immersive reader, which essentially takes text data and allows it to be formatted uh, to allow access to syllables recognition, to apply pictures to words, to uh, know what a noun, what a verb, what an adjective looks like and highlight them accordingly. These are essentially pre-made services that you can pick off the shelf if you're if you're a developer. Hoping that gives you some understanding of kind of, you know, what do we mean by AI? What do we mean by Azure? It's the infrastructure and the cloud compute with the processing power and the, the learning capability that we embed within the technology through to the cognitive services, essentially those somewhat human experiences of vision speech language. You know, like, like these are these are the new expectations of what uh, the, the AI can do, but then through to these pre-mades, you know, recognizing that organizations don't want to reinvent the wheel. So we're starting to see that these, these pre-made tools are what the developers start to access. And the reason I share that with you, of course, uh, is that this is something we've been doing to our own products. Microsoft itself is a work in progress in terms of how do we apply Azure AI to the experiences that we develop as Microsoft. And I want to share with you maybe a few of these features just to kind of give you an idea of kind of, oh yeah, that is AI. But then also I'm going to dig a bit deeper into a few of those experiences to share some of the design decisions that we've made. There's a time to add AI and there's a time to kind of think about actually what how what limitations does this AI have at this time and how do I need to design around those limitations? But some of the examples that might just make you start thinking about, you know, oh, there is a lot of AI inside Microsoft product include automated alt text. So think about the image descriptions that we're seeing routinely applied to the office experience. Uh, if you drop a photo into a into an email, we will use the Azure machine learning uh, or image recognition service to essentially decide what's in that photo and add that to the description with varying amounts of confidence. And we'll come back to that in a minute. That's one of the ones that I'm going to dig into. PowerPoint allows you to just put words on a page uh, in PowerPoint and then for it to design an experience around you. So if I start off with my title slide in a in a in a PowerPoint and I and I say uh, I want to talk I want to do a presentation on Oxford and Alice in Wonderland. Okay, I live in Oxford. We have a we have a museum for Alice in Wonderland here in Oxford. If I put that into the title, it will use the Bing search to analyze those words, go and find some images, and create a beautiful, engaged, centered. Uh, PowerPoint title slide that illustrates the topic we're going to discuss. Yeah, it also will put take a bullet pointed list and apply iconography to that bullet pointed list according to what you've what you've designed. Uh, so if you put uh, agenda, uh, sales meeting, coffee break, uh, annual report, it will put beautiful iconography right next to each of those bullets within my PowerPoint to to make my 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 design more visually appealing. Our read aloud features, our neural text to speech. Uh, I'm hoping some of you have experienced the uh, the new narrator voices that we're using. We're using these neural TTS voices, um, which are beautiful to listen to. 
Uh, and, and essentially that reading experience of read aloud for people with dyslexia, for people who have English as a second language, etc. And of course, regional variation on that. Uh, essentially, you, you, you can listen to documents with absolute clarity. Uh, that is artificial intelligence. The immersive reader, which is now built into OneNote, into Edge, uh, it's built into uh, forms, uh, essentially gives dyslexia support and reading support, vision, visual reading support as well. It gives you that black on yellow or that white on black if you're somebody with low vision, uh, accessing a document, a web page, uh, the text on it. The immersive reader that's built there, that's a cloud delivered service. Our natural language processing is built into Office. So we apply that through uh, a good example would be the, uh, the search feature, Alt-Q. If you're in a, in a, in a, in a Word document uh, and you want to find how to put a small number in a chemical formula. So you're writing carbon dioxide and you want to put that number two in, uh, but you don't know what that terminology is. You don't know where that setting is. Where is that option to put, you know, to, to, to set the number down below the, below the capital O to put the number two in? Well, it's called superscript or subscript. Yeah, sorry, subscript on the, in that example. But if you don't know what subscript is, how on earth would you find that feature? You know it exists, but how do you find it? Oh, you use Alt-Q and you type in small number and it will use that natural language processing to say, oh, I think you meant this and find you that setting with, with, with some confidence. Um, it's actually not as widely used, I think, as it should be. I think it's an amazing feature, uh, but when we're doing adoption, for people who are new to our technologies, using Alt-Q in an intelligent way is something we, we recommend all the time. The edge detection, the form recognizer I referred to earlier, the, uh, the Azure service, we use in Microsoft Lens, uh, or we use it in our, in, our, in our Microsoft 365 app, so that when you're taking a photo of a whiteboard or you're taking a photo of a document, uh, you'll know this potentially from seeing AI, when it knows kind of where the edge of the document is as you're scanning it and you're getting that auditory feedback. But that edge detection is used in the Microsoft 365 and, and Lens apps to essentially give really nice, sharp, clipped images of text. It recognizes what a document looks like, recognizes that the, 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 the information around the, the document is less interesting to you, just locks on the document and crops it accordingly. The live captions that are built into Teams to PowerPoint, uh, these uh, are using my speech through to text. And we're using artificial intelligence to drive the accuracy of that, as we are for the dictation that's available uh, in, in Word. I'm sure some of you are probably using this, but essentially we take just recorded audio files, access the recorded audio file, and then it's automatically transcribed directly into a document. This is incredibly, incredibly useful, but we're using the Azure speech to text to do this as well as using it for dictation. So dictation's different to transcription, transcription's taking that, that holistic audio file and transcribing it into the document, whereas dictation is more, I will take control of my text input with my voice. Uh, you know, that that is using the same speech to text. As is voice access on Windows 11. Voice access allows full programmatic control of your PC. So somebody is able to enumerate links and click those links just through 
but just through saying the number. Uh, you can scroll down through a web page just by using your voice. That's using speech to text with a set of intelligent commands to drive access. For our magnifier, for some time, we've been using what we call bitmap smoothing. So I know some of you will know about, you know, when you magnify to very high levels, you would become, your, your images would become quite jagged. Uh, so or things would become much less clear at high levels of magnification. Um, what we do is we use AI to essentially smooth between the blocks. So the pixelated image becomes smoothed through using some AI to kind of plug the colors between those pixels between the yeah as as you as you start to to magnify yeah so we're you applying ai to just give a beautiful experience uh, when when magnified another good example of something we use regularly is translation so within teams we're able to translate my voice into a foreign language a different language uh, and of course the other way around uh, but also of course we use it in text documents so you can take a word document and you can translate it we're using that cognitive service to drive that experience and i would argue uh, that what that's done for us as a as a product group and you think about all the experiences that, that we've had it's helped people understand that we are modernizing our experience our product is better it's more inclusive it's got new experiences it's got new features that, uh, that, that are interesting to people because we're leveraging artificial intelligence a product delivered through the cloud can leverage these experiences more than a product that's that's offline. More on that later. But actually, that's quite interesting as well, because when you think about many of these features that have been delivered, they sometimes have come to the web version of Office first, then into the installed version. Yeah. So again, there's this, this understanding that you're on the internet already, you can access these services, uh, and then they get tried and tested there before they become kind of, you know, requiring a, connect, a connection to the internet when you're using the product. We're going to talk a bit later about how can we actually start to use AI on the edge. That's a term that you might want to know about. Uh, the AI on the edge experience is when you can start using offline AI. Uh, and actually, the community using Seeing AI were one of the first people to have a really good use case of AI on the edge with the uh, speech to text engine. Again, I'll talk a little bit about that in a, in a while. So to summarize here, I just want to say this product that we build as Microsoft is leveraging Azure applied to a product that's been around for many, many years, Office, Windows, and making it a better product and making it a more inclusive product because we're leveraging artificial intelligence. But let's dig a bit deeper into one of these uh, scenarios, automated alt text. I'm sure many of you have experienced uh, different levels of description or different levels of accuracy of description in, in this experience from, from us, but also others uh, leveraging this technology out there in, in society. Uh, the concept that we can use machine learning to apply uh, a description to an image when the human has not done it for us. Um, so on this screen, I essentially have three examples. The first one is the Looney Tunes, That's All Folks. Uh, I don't know if you remember the tune that used to come at the end of the cartoon. It would say That's All Folks after the Bugs Bunny cartoon. Uh, but essentially it's been adapted to say That's AI Folks. It's just a, it's a joke, it's a joke slide. Um, but the description reads a close up of a logo. Okay, 
so essentially it's it's written in a in a in a scripted the words on the slide are written in a in a scripted kind of cursive way uh, and therefore you know it's not reading the text it's not uh, it's not really giving us a useful description but at that point the designer of this deck this slide uh, is given an option we visualize alt text in a bar along the bottom of the image a close-up of a logo and then two buttons are offered are offered approve or edit now anyone with any common sense here would edit that description to explain what was going on here but only if they understand the importance of alt text okay so people have to understand what it is before maybe investing their time to make that critical change our journey with this is of course we started just by doing it just by doing the alt text, just by applying it to the image. But then what happened is that we recognized that it wasn't, people weren't editing them. And so we recognized the technology was at a set of, you know, it was at a maturity where it was giving good descriptions some of the time, but less than useful some of the time. And so we brought the, the option to approve and edit front of house, I would call it. Uh, we made it more obvious to people that hey, it's not about us, it's about you to change that description uh, and therefore the use of it went up of course it did you know and that's about us maturing in terms of our confidence to, to put that that setting front of house when we look at other image options within the office environment uh, the second image on here is a stock image of some wooden toothbrushes with a variety of colored heads okay and it's there to show i, I guess uh, diversity different colored toothbrushes who knows it's just a nice image <laughs> um, but essentially uh, it comes with a human stock description so a stock image that's part of the experience has a stock description we would never use ai there why would we do that it makes no sense and the same for our iconography which is the final image on here which is essentially an icon of an airplane from above some of the things that are used actually by the tools to create some of our powerpoint designer slides because we put a description of the icon in the alt text automatically for our icons, when the AI builds PowerPoint slides using those icons, we've got a much greater chance of that being usefully accessible. And so this is, this is a really good example of, we do want to do machine learning alt text. You know, we think it adds value. It definitely adds value. And we know that those descriptions are going to get better and better and better but you can't just turn the tool on and expect it to be world-class. You've got to bring the human into the loop. Uh, and I think this is a really exciting kind of a, I just think it's a good case study of, you know, it's what you can, not what you can do, but the way you should do it and the best way to implement it. Another example I just want to share in terms of the implementation experience is PowerPoint. Now PowerPoint has subtitles available and they're good. I mean, they are genuinely good, uh, but why are they good? Well, when you open up a PowerPoint and you have the subtitles turned on, I can actually turn them on in my presentation here, uh, but you'll see here, I've got some captions that are starting now. Hopefully they're gonna appear here, but actually, I'm just gonna let you know that I've got some captions starting here now, okay? Uh, and you know, they're, they're, they're okay. They're just getting used to me now. They're getting used to my speech. Uh, in fact, I wonder, uh, yeah, they're doing well, they're catching up. Okay, um, but as I start talking to them, for the first 60 seconds, this is a raw data model. 
OK, you'll see now as I start presenting more and talking to the camera more, they also become much more accurate. Um, but essentially for the first 60 seconds, these are using uh, these are using a raw data set. After 60 seconds, it's read my slides, read my notes and created uh, a um, and created essentially a model that drives the accuracy up to a higher level. So it's essentially taken uh, my data on my slides, my personal data on my slides and created uh, a very specific model to me to drive the accuracy of that experience. However, at that point we've got to recognize that my data is not your data and so after 60 seconds it keeps the information local, you know that, that local word list, but when I close the presentation it then wipes that file to make the experience GDPR compliant. Okay, so essentially the point I'm making here um, is we can put the experience in to drive more inclusion and more accessibility, but we also have to respect the other regulations that are important within that experience and the, the, the policies that organizations will implement uh, in their organization. We've had many organizations worry about turning the captions on. Where is the data going? Where is it processed? And of course, data sovereignty in terms of where you can determine where that data is processed has been an evolving conversation for the tech sector. It's getting much, much easier for people to, to determine where their data goes. But what we designed into the PowerPoint experience was this recognition that like, we had no interest in what was on your slides. That's not our data. It's your data delete at the end. So, so I'm just saying it's a good example of, of respecting other policies. The flow of work is also important. And so one of the things that, that I, I regularly see within the business space is non-captioned video, non-captioned training videos, non-captioned videos in lobbies around around the world that as I travel to, to people's head offices. Um, discoverability is important here. And so within uh, SharePoint, uh, we now have the, the, the stream service for video. And that stream service uses automated captioning to drive uh, accurate caption files. Again, we cannot rely on 100% accuracy, but it does use the existing data within your SharePoint to help you drive the accuracy of your videos. So it knows your names, your organizational names, your vocabulary is essentially a file within your data lake. And then when we put the videos up onto your SharePoint, you your data drives the accuracy of the of those captions and then the importance of the workflow comes in it needs to be easy to edit these things so again using the ai in a responsible way but then also recognizing the importance of when the human comes in we can't just have people saying accepting inaccurate captions we need to get to a point where people will know it's there it's easy for me to edit it's in the normal flow of work in mainstream products using AI to do 95% of the work, 99% of the work, and then making the changes. Now, regardless of how much time we put into making our products more accessible, more inclusive, and adding features and making sure that uh, we, uh, you know, maintain those, the, the, that, that, that pace of change, you know, and that pace of investment and leveraging these tools, I have to say one of the most, one of the biggest challenges we have is discoverability. And so a good example of this is, is that 
I'm using a screen share here for the video, but typically in a Teams meeting, I would use PowerPoint Live, PowerPoint Live View, uh, to present my slides to an interacting audience in a Teams meeting. And the reason I would do that is that when I put my slides up into, uh, into the experience, rather than just share my screen, it means that, that content is accessible to people using screen readers and that the links in my presentations are clickable by everybody. OK, so everybody can click those links. That's a huge benefit yeah? to know that my experience is accessible, does put a focus on people making their slide content accessible, which is also a, a big win. Um, but clickable links are, are a mainstream win. Yeah, everybody benefits from clickable links. The high contrast view becomes an option to people as well, right? So regardless of how somebody's designed the slides, I can flick them in and out of a high contrast view to make sure I've got a better chance of, of being able to see them. I can translate those slides into a preferred language. And of course, I think when you're talking about accessibility through some of these other aspects, it brings focus back to the option of things like live captions, which is a, a routine experience in, in Teams. But this PowerPoint live view, I would argue, is not landed as well as it should have with people who it's been designed to benefit and so i really would ask you as an audience to to, to 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 take this message forward and start saying please start using powerpoint live if you want to present to me in a meeting just use powerpoint live because then i can interact with the content um and obviously the verbosity or the amount of words that you're hearing depends on the setting you've got on your screen on your screen reader but essentially you can just hear the links or you can hear the the content as well if you think it's important just by essentially changing your your settings on your on your screen reader um in summary visibility discoverability of these settings also needs to come into the design decision it's no good organizations just saying hey we've put these new features in to drive more inclusion we're leveraging ai and the cloud to drive this part of the design is the discoverability. And so when you share in PowerPoint Live, there's these two dot, three dots, sorry, underneath uh, this hamburger, essentially they call it, uh, that, that gets you to see these options that are available. And the fact that translation is next to high contrast, uh, important. Just so you know, it also allows you to take the slides at your own pace. So if you've joined a meeting and you need to jump out 10 minutes early, Regardless of the pace of the presenter, uh, you can uh, you can jump out, you know, go through the slide content, click the links and leave uh, if you wish. You do not have that luxury here today. Uh, I'm using a, a standard screen share, but when I do use a scan standard screen share, uh, I use a large, brightly coloured mouse because I want to also drive inclusion for people to make sure that they can see what I'm pointing at. Behaviour, the technology, the discoverability of the features so that people who can people can self serve uh, to these features. They're all part of the mix. OK, offline AI I mentioned, and I just want to talk through this uh, this journey of live captions a bit further. And the reason I do it is because it's now one of the best examples of AI on the edge. Uh, we have now delivered live captioning anywhere in Windows, whether you're connected to the internet or not. Uh, people can access it through uh, clicking uh, Control Windows key L or finding it in the uh, in the in the Action Center in Windows. Windows key A, accessibility, find you, your, your kind of top six accessibility features and you'll find live captions there. Um, but we, the same as our voice access, you can now run this offline, okay? 
That's because the data gathering and the model that's been designed around speech to text has now got to the point of accuracy that we are at confidence level to deploy offline and, and install the language model directly onto people's PCs. Uh, this is amazing. I mean, genuinely, I've been working in the assistive technology world for 27 years uh, and I never thought I'd get to see this. You know, we thought it was always going to be human only. Then AI came along and now you've got offline AI. Genuinely, this means that people who live in the most disconnected parts of the world uh, have no internet access and no luxury of inclusion uh, through something like live captioning can now have that. And that is huge when we think about the global ambitions, particularly that we have as Microsoft. Uh, but essentially it got there because we were able to build a model using the online option first. So maybe organizations also need to start thinking about what's the route and the journey towards an offline experience. That's coming. OK, take a bit of a breath. This is exciting. We've added Azure services to Microsoft products and routinely the products become more accessible, but it's underpinned in terms of all of our AI principles. We want things to be private and secure. We want things to be inclusive. We want there to be accountability in the tools that people are building. We want there to be transparency in what's happening with the data. We want there to be fairness and reliability and safety. These are Microsoft's responsible AI principles. Uh, Organisations of all types are going to start using AI, uh, and we want to make sure that they recognise that when we deliver our AI, these are the, the principles that we work on, but they're not just for us. Therefore, the whole tech sector, you know, think about how Microsoft delivers its products and its services globally to lean into. But they're also for other organizations to think about as they build their programs and they build their strategies around it. Have they got the tools and the processes? Are they doing the relevant training on accessibility would be a brilliant one for people to start thinking about. You know, if you're training everyone on AI, don't miss this opportunity to add accessibility in. What are the rules and how are you governing that technology uh, as you roll it out? So the technology will always be the technology. But the rules and the principles that we adhere to as we build these technologies need to be absolutely front and centre of our thoughts. In order to do this, we need to be reaching out across organisations of all industries. We need to be working with policymakers, politicians to help them understand the power of AI, the opportunity it's going to drive in terms of disability inclusion, future jobs, future skilling, uh, future innovation, future experiences. But we need to make sure that accessibility is seen as one of those governing principles. Uh, you know, we know that as our accessibility team, we are constantly talking across the business to make sure that we're, you know, both carrot and stick, you know, the opportunity uh, and the regulation, you know, the, the you know, the, the, the safety, the common sense <laughs> that, that, that kind of sits there uh, to make sure is it accessible is a question we need to be constantly asking. OK, this is this is not for maybe today to have a kind of a, a, a long conversation about, but but as organisations are having these formative conversations about cloud and AI and they still are. Even after six, seven years at Microsoft, organizations are really just starting to dip their toe in the water of AI uh, as we think across all industries. Um, we've got to make sure that accessibility and disability inclusion is front and center. Let's talk about seeing AI. And I've really, you know, it's, it's genuinely been a, I would say, a kind of a, a, a consistent partner to me 
in the conversations that I've been having with businesses around the world, because it's just a brilliant example of net new innovation that came to the blind community, blind and low vision community around the world. You know, it really is just a, a brilliant Swiss army knife of tools. But when we think about what seeing AI is, you know, it's a camera app on your phone that essentially uses artificial intelligence to add a, a Swiss army knife of different tools to, to, to help somebody access information. Who's in the room with me? What colour clothes am I wearing? Uh, what colour clothes am I pulling out of my drawer? Through to uh, reading that sticky note, that handwritten sticky note that somebody's left for me, all the way through to scanning documents uh, and, and, and the beauty of even things like room navigation or indoor navigation coming now. What is it built on? It's built on Azure. Okay, so it's built on Vision AI, those Azure cognitive services that I was talking about. This, the, the offline AI, the edge AI example of instant speech to text. Brilliant. I mean, like the first people that did it was, was, was seeing AI, where you just literally flash your camera, like literally waft it over a little bit of text and it starts reading to you straight away with no latency. Yeah, is unbelievable because Sakib and the team did a fantastic job about really determining the use case. I can't rely on connectivity when I just need to read something as simple as a leaflet. Yeah, uh, is, is a brilliant bit of design. Yeah, and they did a fantastic job at doing it. OK, sentiment analysis is another good example. We've all had fun knowing that it's uh, a bald man in his 40s smiling to camera, you know, or looking happy, I think is the phraseology it uses, right? OK, so we've all had fun with that kind of, you know, that image descriptions uh, of faces, but essentially it used Azure. I mean, it's, a, it's an Azure play, as we would call it. Yeah. Um, and that's the beauty of it, to create this Swiss army knife of like recognizing money, light conditions in the room. An amazing team representative of the lived experience of blindness, low vision, essentially designed a set of tools designed for their own use, their own experience. Beautiful, we all love it. You know, everyone, I, don't, I genuinely don't know anybody that doesn't love seeing AI. Uh, it's, it's been an amazing experience, but, but the richness of experience that's been delivered is because of experience of lived experience of course it is yeah you know that 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 honing in on the barcode i've i've, I've you know i've sat and had a coffee with sakib many times talking about his design journey around some of these features but just that concept of like how to give an experience that hones in on a barcode and helps you orientate the packaging to to find the barcode is it's genius i mean it's just brilliant yeah it's just great thoughtfulness and thinking about the tools that are available. I'm a big fan, probably coming across. But it's built on inclusive data. That's what's so important. You know, when you hear the stories about the first things we had to do was send people out into the community to take photos of money in the way that somebody who's blind would take that photo with the money not centered, catching an edge, out of focus, poor lighting conditions. You know, people who are blind and not necessarily understanding or, you know, the, the, you know unable to focus on an image and therefore the data had to represent it. Of course it did. But that learning that happened through the process is what's so beautiful. Yeah, it's that, that, that engineering team were just going out there and saying, take rubbish photos of, of money you know and send them to us right because it helps us build the model build the model for recognizing money in different scenarios that, that that somebody who's blind would experience that is a great story to share with others 
is that that data needs to be representative of the real data, the real experience. Otherwise, the tool just doesn't work. You know, the feature doesn't work. And the other beautiful thing I think that's happened is that Secub has continued the journey. Uh, the handwriting recognition, I hope you agree, has just got so much better. Uh, my writing is terrible. I'm a classic, um, I'm going to say, I'm a classic left-hander uh, <laughs> who just scrolls. Okay, I, you know, I'm probably, you know, of an age as well, where I just, you know, don't take care of my handwriting quite as much as I used to. Uh, I, I scroll a lot. Okay, I don't write as often as I used to, frankly, right? Uh, and so the fact that it, I've been watching it with my handwriting get better and better over the last six years, it's amazing. So that's where the model is adapting to get better and better. And the other thing is that those feature experiences are changing. So you can now do document uh, heading analysis. Uh, so you used to be able to kind of capture a document and it would just give you the long body of text. Now it's looking at the structure of a document through the form recognition tool and is able to pick out the, uh, the, the headings and help you navigate those headings in a, in a sensible way using voiceover on your iPhone. Brilliant. You know, the, the tool doesn't stay still. As the technology moves on, the team start looking at the capabilities of the technology and adapting it for their use case. Fantastic. We now need to make sure that others are doing this. Yeah. So again, it's this great example of built with disability in mind, specific to an audience, driving the technology forward, uh, as well as leveraging and applying the new technologies as they evolve specific to the use case. So it doesn't sit still. Indoor navigation is an exciting new feature which allows one person to lay down a trail of virtual waypoints. Someone can then follow the route later on by following the audio cues. You can think of this like laying down a trail of breadcrumbs and following them later on. First of all, let's switch to the world channel. Channel, short text, world, preview. If you're using a device with a LiDAR, you'll have buttons for filters and actions and you'll find indoor navigation inside the actions menu. Actions. Indoor navigation. On other devices, you'll see indoor navigation right on the main screen. Here we have a list of all routes found nearby. As we swipe through. Routes. Heading. We hear there's just one route. Break room to coffee bar. Button. Break room to coffee bar. So let's double tap it and select follow. Break alert. Follow. Button. Loading route. Now, we hear a sound coming from the first waypoint, and visually, a series of balls stretching out along the route. Let's walk towards the sound, and that pop indicates we've hit the first waypoint. Let's look with the camera left and right, and we can hear the location of the next waypoint. Let's keep going. There's another one. And another. And let's keep going. That success sound indicates we've reached our destination. And here we are at the coffee bar. That's a really quick overview of following a route with indoor navigation. This is really early technology, and we invite all feedback from the community. We want to know how you use this and how we can make it better. So great to see that landing recently from Sakia. We announced it at the uh, the Ability Summit. Uh, it's out now, so you can start start using it. Um, interestingly, um, Seeing Eye has, has, has got a lot of interest from lots of different people. Um, here in the UK, uh, I may have seen it in the US as well, um, we essentially have TV adverts for uh, Seeing AI. 
sponsored, essentially, or funded by a company called Halion, created for Halion uh, in partnership with this company. They make, uh, they're the world's largest consumer healthcare company. Um, and as part of their launch of Halion, it's split from another big pharmaceutical company, but as part of their brand launch, uh, inclusion was a major part of their brand principle. They wanted to look at consumer experiences and for those consumer experiences to be as inclusive as possible, to make real investments in accessible, inclusive healthcare. Uh, and obviously they got to know us at Microsoft. Uh, we were doing a lot of work with their, uh, with their other digital innovation space and, and then you know as a major customer of ours um, but as part of this experience of looking to kind of how do we help the world understand that we are committing to disability inclusion and accessibility um, we looked at seeing AI and they've now loaded 15,000 product experiences from the barcode up into seeing AI so you will now have a much better experience with Sensodyne, Centrum, Voltarol, Chapstick uh, because we've collaborated with them. I think this is also an important part of what we do in the tech sector around accessibility. Uh, each industry is gonna play its role in the inclusion of people with disabilities. We're not here to do inclusive healthcare, right, as such. We're here to do the technology that people build their platforms on and help them build inclusive experiences. Uh, so this was a fantastic example of how seeing AI can be stretched even further we're now seeing other companies come to Microsoft and saying, how do we get in? How do we get our barcodes and our experiences put into seeing AI because it's seen as a tool that people are using? It's interesting. What also has happened here is that the team who's from Halion is pushing us to essentially uh, move to more platforms as well. So as part of the announcement, we also said that seeing AI will come to Android because Halion wanted that to be part of the delivery experience. And as the customer of Microsoft, that's something we will do with them. So this is interesting as well. Uh, will more organizations get, you know, really looking into their responsibilities around accessibility, help us move forward? And I think this is this has been a, a fantastic journey with, uh, with Halion thus far. Other companies are doing it. And so you'll also see uh, things like uh, the immersive reader built into USA Today. Uh, we've got image description now in LinkedIn. A television channel in Sweden called SVT is using live captioning for its news. Essentially, what we're seeing is much wider set of corporate organizations, customers of Microsoft, are looking at how they can also look to inclusion. And a lot of this is to do with the Microsoft field teams going having those conversations with the customers. More conversations about accessibility is what they're going to drive us forward. More conversations beyond just the tech sector is what can really drive digital accessibility forward. One of my favorite stories this year, again using artificial intelligence, using cloud services, was from Spain. An amazing mainstream partner. So they don't do disability products or projects regularly. In fact, they've never done them before. Um, a, a company called Alicia uh, partnered with Onthe. Now, this is all part of Microsoft's pledge to accessibility with our partners that we got them excited about the topic of accessibility and they wanted to do innovation. They wanted to do some inclusion projects. And so they got together with Onthe in Spain to create Braille character recognition. Now, the Braille character recognition looks at essentially. Braille's difficult to photograph well. 
you know it's white dots on white backgrounds it doesn't photograph well at all so you've got to train the ai to know what it's likely to be seeing to build this experience of braille to text now it takes a bit of getting kind of getting your head around braille to text is a really interesting application because it's not necessarily about empowering somebody who's blind or low vision it's about prioritizing the person who's working with them and the real driver here was the teacher who wasn't used to braille yeah the examiner who wasn't used to braille being able to take photographs and convert into text to then uh, you know essentially be involved in the process so it was to support the person who didn't have braille skills to be supported in that collaborative experience now this is an ongoing project it's really interesting and they're building up their data set the accuracy is improving but this will make a huge difference out there but it didn't come from us it came from our partners building into the leaning into the culture of innovation in this space genuinely thrilled uh, that this happened this year People need to take our technologies and apply them in their challenges in partnership with the community from the mainstream tech sector. It's just it's just got so many of the beautiful ingredients that we look for. And so when we think about data sets, you know, our AI for accessibility team have been doing some amazing work, particular uh, work for the University in London that, that over here um, around how do you shrink the data desert by having data sets that are built with by the community disability community you know working with it to kind of take the challenge statement what data set do we need to influence and really start to uh, you know to to proactively coach organizations how to build these ai algorithms that are trained on inclusive data so you know it's it's programs like our ai for accessibility program that kind of create the the ecosystem to have that conversation another example of course is uh, you know employment and jobs and job skilling and, and the hiring processes of organizations around the world routinely as they start to use ai you know could they negatively impact people with disabilities by screening out disability talent when it's when it shouldn't be screened out so what is it about that ai tool that is having a negative impact on a hiring tool and how do we work with the industry and the organizations involved to recognize the need to build an AI model that, that, that does this, that, you know, that, that has that positive impact. In the time that we've got left, I want to talk about generative AI. And that's really the terminology. And people are talking about OpenAI, ChatGPT, uh, people talk about DALI. You'll hear all of these terms. Um, but essentially, generative AI, large language models, is the kind of the zeitgeist conversation. People are talking about it. It is all over the news. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of stories from the super ambitious about what the technology can do to through to the real fear about the impact it's going to have on society. And of course, we, we, we acknowledge that that conversation is happening. And that is right. It is going to be a game changer because you're going to be able to interact with AI in a much more natural way. And the, 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 the data sources that it's pulling from to pull in that, 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 that experience is going to be, you know, much more powerful. That's coming. But we must also remember this speech to text, <laughs> form recognizer, immersive reader. You know, if I think about the immersive reader for dyslexia as a good example, it hasn't even been applied and it's just a cloud service to experiences like uh, bank statements, mortgage contracts, uh, health information should should be using things like the immersive reader to drive more legibility and literacy uh, of that experience. 
and we're not even doing that yet, right? So this race to chat GPT, you know, should come with a recognition that we've still got a lot of work to do around just general inclusive digital transformation. And there are tools that are there now that people can start using. Um, but turning back to Sakib, maybe just a few words from Sakib in terms of what he feels this experience uh, or what he thinks this technology can bring uh, to, to excite us all a little bit. I'm just swapping to another channel to, to show this video. I lost my sight when I was seven and ever since then I've been interested in technology and how it can have an impact to improve people's lives. A few years ago, I got the opportunity to follow my passion and to work on Seeing AI, which is a talking camera app for people who are blind. About a year ago, we started hearing about generative AI and experimenting with the different ways it can help. But the recent announcement a couple of months ago of GPT-4, now that just took things to a whole new level. Smaller white text. Below the text, there is an illustration of a pink fish. The sign is hanging above the entrance of a restaurant. The big difference is now these large models have been trained to recognize so many different things and the language capabilities, we can get very rich, vivid descriptions of images and the world around us. The crane is extended upwards and appears to be in use. Sometimes when I'm out and about with my son, I really enjoy having those conversations about the things around us. Tell me about the starfish. The most distinctive is the bright orange starfish, which stands out against the darker colors of the other starfish. My son and I have so many fun adventures, and it's incredible to think what this will enable us to share together. I imagine this future where AI and humans work together, where the AI understands us each as individuals and can fill in the gaps for each and every one of us. So as Sakib says, it's really just larger language models, different experiences, and when we go back to our description of where does open AI, where does generative AI sit within this model of what Azure is? Remember I said earlier kind of what, what is Azure? Uh, what is the cloud? This machine learning remains the same. The capability, the infrastructure and the machine learning to drive this, uh, this next generation of artificial intelligence remains the same. Those AI models of vision and speech and language and decision sit there alongside an Azure OpenAI service. So this is additional to these existing services to create that much, uh, much more intelligent interaction model. But those cognitive services, those customizable AI models, they're still going to be uh, linking into those scenarios that we talked about earlier. You know, what, what does the future video indexer look like with an Azure OpenAI service? Do we start thinking about things like uh, uh, automatic audio description being more possible because it understands the context of still images within video and the sequencing? Do when we think about things like bot services, where are they going to pull their information from using OpenAI to drive that much richer uh, experience? You know, beyond the beyond the core data. Yeah. And of course, what's the delivery model for these experiences? Is it Power Apps? Is it in Microsoft 365? Is it in Edge, which we'll talk about in a moment? You know, how will people experience this added benefit? Will it be through seeing AI? Well, this is really a kickstart, I would say, that we're seeing right now to this next set of 
innovation in the assistive technology space. We're already seeing that amazing work with Be My Eyes and the team there you know, using GPT-4. Amazing that you know that, that, that they were so involved in that, uh, and we 100% love that that's happening. Yeah, um, but but we can apply that that concept to so many more assistive technologies, as well as having these industry specific conversations around the experiences we all have in accessing our banking, our healthcare, our education, uh, our retail experiences. What I'm really pleased about in terms of the way that we're talking about this next generation of AI though, is that we're using the term co-pilot. I actually heard a very, very senior politician not you know, say it without even realising it uh, when they were talking about AI uh, just, just this weekend. They talked about the co-pilot capability of artificial intelligence as opposed to this replacement model. Yeah, We know that AI, when it works best, works best with the human experience. I think I've shown you that through this session. Yeah, the human needs to be in the loop to verify, to make sure that it's doing what we want it to do. But what you're going to hear a lot from Microsoft in the next few months is this concept of co-pilots, uh, co-pilots within Windows, co-pilots within Word, co-pilots within your Outlook, essentially offering you that, that extra level of support, but you honing the experience. And so I, if you think about something like Word, the contextual experience of OpenAI, generative AI, is I can I can use the terminology draft a proposal from yesterday's meeting notes and it will know who I am. <laughs> it's me on my file, you know, interacting with them. Yeah. What it means by yesterday's meeting notes might need to be clarified. Yeah. Uh, but it knows what yesterday is. It knows where my OneNote is. It knows how to grab that information from my uh, from my office account. Right. But ascent, and it knows what proposal is using the, the open AI model. Yeah. So this concept of of image generation becomes really feasible. Of course, we've got to make sure that that, that um, document that it creates is accessible, right? So these are all going to also be part of the, the experience and the race that we're kind of, you know, we're, we're on right now. But this concept of co-pilot in conjunction with the human is 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 interesting. Um, now I'm just going to play a video, but I'm going to play it with audio off because I'm going to talk through what, what's happening uh, as, I, as I go. Um, but if we think about an example like a co-pilot in PowerPoint, um, if you were trying to create a PowerPoint presentation, what are you building it from? So taking a Word document that you'd spent work on and you, you know, you'd you'd, you'd uh, structured beautifully uh, and being able to convert it directly into a nicely structured PowerPoint becomes feasible. So it takes the words, it takes the imagery, uh, potentially from your Word document or potentially from the cloud, uh, and just through a few basic instructions creates this pitch document. The co-pilot experience though, that we'll, we'll have built into PowerPoint, and this has already been released as in, not released, but spoken about, right? It's already been shown at some of our big tech shows. Um, you're able to start saying things like add animations to this slide or I don't like this slide. Can you make it brighter? You know, you're then able to start. You're really using an intelligent co-pilot in the experience without knowing where the setting is within within the experience. So, you know, your skills in terms of being able to create a PowerPoint, the co-pilot will work with you to essentially allow you to create that beautiful document. Now, this obviously starts to bring real opportunity for us to think about who does this benefit? 
So this concept of a, of a co-pilot in PowerPoint is different to one in Excel. In Excel, what you're saying is, tell me what the, you know, what the, what the trend is in sales figures on this product over the last three months. And using chat to interrogate data is going to be interesting and important. And again, when I say interesting, I mean, we've got to be in that conversation, really monitoring those experiences to make sure it's giving us what we want from a diverse set of perspectives. It's going to be fascinating. It is going to be absolutely fascinating. But the terminology that you've seen from the very outset is not, uh, is anything, not anything more than augmenting the human experience. We've been saying this for six years. AI, when applied perfectly, augments the human experience. That's really what it's about. Um, if we think about kind of the, those services that were that, that in that if, in that co-pilot experience um, and who it benefits, well, of course, we're starting to see that people with physical disabilities and mobility disabilities will start to be able to very rapidly create uh, using voice, using text input, using short number of words, creating large amounts of work. Uh, when we think about um, taking information from a document from information, uh, you can ask it to summarize documents or summarize presentations or bullet point that slide. When you just think generally about the application of, of, of generative AI, uh, taking a document or let's say a PDF that isn't a great experience in terms of tabbing around and being able to interrogate that PDF uh, for information is a different strategy in terms of how you're interacting with that with that information. So I think it's going to be interesting to watch how uh, you know the experiences that people build and the feature demands that are going to come on us uh, from a from a from an accessibility perspective. It's going to be it's going to be fascinating. Another place that we can see it being applied already as well is Edge. So in Microsoft Edge, there is a essentially a, a sidebar, a Bing sidebar now. Um, and and some important and interesting tools that, that are there for you to to take a look at uh, include uh, image generator. So on the screen here now, I'm looking at a, uh, a description, a colourful explosion of confetti over the Tower of London, and using generative AI, the DALI image uh, creator that, that's built into Edge now, um, I have got four different but incredible images of literally cloud bursts of rainbow confetti over the Tower of London against uh, some quite moody dark backdrops. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, and, and so with some confidence, we're going to get to the point where you know that when you give a good description of an image, yeah, so I mean, the, the, the concept of a prompt engineer is something you're going to hear a lot about, but somebody who knows how to get the best results out of the, uh, the, the the tool by using the right commands, uh, that's going to be a skill that we need to coach and, and learn. Um, but when we do, we're going to get to a point where we can really start to rely on the images that, that a tool like that creates. There's an insights tool within uh, Edge now as well. So when I'm looking at one website, so in this example, we've, I've gone to a baseball team's uh, website. The last game I saw was the Dodgers versus the Brewers. So I went and uh, looked at the Brewers website. Um, but as I went into the Brewers website to their homepage on the side, I got the other news, you know, the score by the innings on the last game that they played against the Reds. And then some, uh, you know, some highlights of what happened in the different in innings in the scoring summary of that game. 
I didn't ask for that when I went to the Milwaukee Brewers website, but this extra tool is just giving me extra information. There's a text composition uh, plugin as well, which allows you to essentially put, so I put in here the history of the Netherlands uh, in the what do I want, but then I get to choose the tone of that text from professional to casual, funny, informational. Uh, I get to choose the format. Do I want a paragraph, an email, a blog post, uh, some bulleted ideas? And what length do I want this to be? Do I want it to be short, to be medium, to be long? So these are tools that people are already out there messing around with. Uh, I wrote, I've written some social media posts that were purely me prompting the Edge sidebar to generate that, that, that text for me. Uh, and it does a does a good job. <laughs> so, so you know, I think you've got to be playing with it and, you know, to, to see uh, what you think of it as well. And then, of course, there's the chat aspect. Um, so, you know, the, and it's the contextual chat that I think that people need to understand. This is not a simple web search, you know, it's not, it's, this is not Ask Jeeves. This is not this idea that, hey, I know exactly what I want and I'm getting that information directly from that website or that link to that website. We're, we're total, re totally reliant on the quality of the kind of the ordering of the search in internet search right now. But pulling from multiple sources and having a contextual memory of the conversation we're having allows me to go through long conversations with the uh, the chat in Edge to get down to sort of some good information from a wide variety of cited sources. So essentially it gives you the links to the websites that's pulling this information from. So it has the chat with you, but it essentially constantly is giving you kind of three, two or three links of where this, like the, the veracity of this information, like the, the credibility of this information by, by citing which websites it's pulling from. When we look at that Bing example, again, we can start to think of many, many different people who will benefit from having that. So I'm already hearing from people who are dyslexic about the, 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 just to be able to create good, bodies of text uh, rapidly just takes a weight away from them. Uh, when I think about people getting specific disability information uh, through chat, so uh, some good examples we've seen are people looking for wheelchair accessible taxis uh, in cities and rather than having to kind of understand which firms are the first, like if, if they don't even know that city, how would you even get started? But using an engine like this, it really allows them to kind of at least get some good examples quickly and contextually. Yeah, so so we're going to see a lot of different uh, applications. We're going to see people testing different things, testing different scenarios. Let's keep working in partnership. Let's keep sharing back to each other, uh, you know, the progress we're making, but also kind of what the tools are doing and how they're behaving uh, as you use them. Uh, hit that Windows key F. Uh, and give feedback, you know, get that feedback to us uh, on the experiences that you're that you're getting through Bing through through Edge. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to watch. Looking at jobs, also worth knowing that we're using generative AI to look at things like coding. So if we look at the GitHub Copilot that's been announced, uh, and then this idea of generating code from prompts, I want a uh, an edge plugin that allows me to book taxis, uh, wheelchair accessible taxis in Stockholm City. It can code that as a template for you then to reverse engineer. Yeah, so essentially the main body of work can be used using generative AI. Uh, this is going to be interesting. Now, what it also means though is a huge opportunity for people who didn't think about themselves as coders or qualifying for coding jobs, and I put my hand up as one of those people, suddenly thinking, oh, Actually, I could do that job 
you know, with a maybe with an easier onboarding on the coding and the more, much more technical aspects of it because it's been democratized a little bit in terms of that entry point. You know, maybe I can start doing some of that good prompt engineering work without being the person who's doing the security stuff on the back end. Yeah, that's these sorts of conversations are going to ha start happening. And so again, going back to our core principles of the inclusion of people with disabilities in the industries driving the experiences, we've got to start, start thinking about like those future jobs and make sure that as communities, we're kind of looking at these new experiences and making sure that when we're educating people coming through out of colleges into the job fairs, we're sort of saying you could absolutely be a coder because we've got these tools available. So thinking through some new scenarios, now I've mentioned kind of subtly some of them through through the thing, but I, I just wanted to kind of just have a, a few moments for ideation. You know, of course, these will just be a few ideas that I come up with. But when we think about it, there are things that were kind of previously kind of really quite hard to conceive that will become more conceivable with this new tool available to us with a generative AI model. So um, I'm already using it to summarize PDFs, inaccessible PDFs, like things that are just not accessible. I can open my PDF up in Edge, go into my chat, yeah, and say, can you give me this document in five bullet points? And it will go and analyze the text and come back to me with those five bullet points. Now that's taking something that would be quite difficult to navigate, a frustrating experience, not getting the full experience, but maybe having a workable experience with it in that moment, and I think you know, let's 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 go and let's go and play with that. Um, Sakib mentioned contextual image description, so I don't know whether that, whether it came across so well, but essentially, uh, there's a crane in the background, and it looks like they're working right now. That contextual information is what becomes interesting. You know, hey, I'm looking at a packet of chicken, but it looks like it's out of date. <laughs> would be a good contextual image description because it knows today's date, it knows the date that's on the food. Maybe I won't touch that chicken. Yeah, but that rather than just saying it's a packet of, you know, chicken thighs, what is it telling me? Is it giving me contextual image description? And let's drive for that. Yeah. Um, Automated audio description is totally feasible now, and I'm already showing videos of some real in-depth AI experiences around video. Um, and, and so if it knows the characters, if it knows what's happening between those objects on screen in real time, and, and I don't know how far we are away from this, but essentially this concept of automated audio description becomes interesting, and maybe that's that that that's a data collection project right there you know you know what is good audio description how is it driven what information is it taking in how do we feed that model to drive that experience and one that came out in conversation with uh, <laughs> a colleague of mine uh, who works on our ai for accessibility program was also the concept that the chatbot doesn't need to be delivered digitally anymore that generative ai can be in the back end for an, an accessible experience if you think about some of those automated chatbots using your telephone, they're using traditional chatbot technology, but the sort of support that we're getting through the edge sidebar here, you know, that contextual chat is also going to be able to be read out to you through other means of technology, not just relying on that in the moment experience on screen, essentially on a, on a PC or on a, on a smartphone. 
and 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 when when chatting to my colleague about this, the excitement was that some of those experience, some of that information that that would be completely inaccessible, like time train timetables, and recognizing you like where you are in reference to that train timetable, your location, that sort of experience could be delivered to deliver to somebody using a standard feature phone using voice, using this generative AI in the background. That is also incredibly interesting, and so. We don't know what the next set of tools are going to be. I hope that that's really what I'm trying to convey here. But every time we've seen that leap forward in net new technology, we do see innovation happen. But we've always got to keep bringing it back to this. What is responsible AI? Are we being accessible? Are we being rigorously accessible in the experience? Is the data representative of the people who this tool is built to include and empower? And are we embracing disability as a drive for innovation to influence these new set of tools and to have you know the future that we want in this uh, digital society so so you know as i say i've been with microsoft seven years it's been a super fun seven years right you know really i came in just as cloud was starting to be an experience but now we've kind of matured around that cloud experience and what does ai do and how does it hone itself in our products how does it continue to iterate but there is this next step now and you know across all industries we know that people are going to be looking at generative ai and what it can do for us we've got to keep having first principles you know got to have keep having first principles let's not forget the progress we've made on the ai stage within the last six or seven years and those amazing tools led by people with disabilities like sakib and his experiences around seeing ai but then let's start looking at how we apply these to the future industries the jobs market, the employment uh, processes, you know, we're going to see generative AI plugged in routinely. We've got to make sure that we're really embracing it with that first principle mentality. To wrap up, discoverability is going to be important here. And, 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 I, and I just am so happy to see some of that, the progress we've made. Um, if you look at the accessibility checker in Office, we now have uh, about to come to you in the flow of work accessibility assistant using artificial intelligence to sort of know when you've done something that's going to lead to inaccessibility an unlabeled image poor color contrast and just in that flow of work just flag you with a little person the little accessibility icon uh, next to it to sort of say hey here are some inline fixes go click it and just make this document more accessible that discoverability and confidence of the tech sector to put these accessibility features front and center, I think is, uh, is something I'm genuinely delighted to see. But perhaps to close, I think I'm also excited about the leaders within the tech sector openly talking about accessibility. And so there's a quote from Panos Panay, who's a head of devices, runs uh, Windows Design uh, at Microsoft talking about when you think about accessibility, whether it's a dexterity problem or if you want to use voice or only write or only type, whatever the mode of input is, the co-pilot will take it. The Windows co-pilot will take it. What he's talking about here is you are now going to be able to interrogate, <laughs> I'm going to use that word, or you know, have a conversation with Windows to talk about what features you want to see, as in what experience you're trying to drive. Hey, I need to focus immediately going into the focus settings and turning off your distractions or I can't see this you know can we make it bigger automatically directing you to magnifier for people who don't know 
how to make how to use some of these tools. So the discoverability of accessibility is something that will definitely be driven by these co-pilots. I can go into Edge right now and have a conversation with it about assistive technology, which for somebody who's worked in the field 27 years, I can tell you is giving good guidance. It is giving really valid advice. Hey Bing, uh, I'm colorblind. What can I do on this Windows 11 PC? And it tells me, go Windows U, go into the color filters and try those settings, right? That information is out there within the large language model and is being delivered to us. So I think maybe also the kind of the thing to look forward to within this conversation is this concept of heightened discoverability for more people in society. I'd like to thank you for spending time with us. Uh, you, hopefully it's come across that we, you know, we, we, we embrace this opportunity of AI and the impact it can have on the lives of people with disabilities, but we recognize the core importance of representation, regulation, around disability and making sure that we're leaning into that space and having conversations with the people who are building the policies that we for the society that we live in um, let's keep having the conversation uh, my name is hector minto i'm on twitter at h m i n t o you can also follow us at microsoft enable at msft e n a b l e thank you and enjoy the rest of your conference any closing thoughts from Microsoft before Monica gives the CE codes? Just thank everybody for this conversation and we really are interested in continuing the conversation. So we look forward to hearing from you, joining in an additional conversation tomorrow and seeing many of you in person next week. Thanks so much. We wanna thank you for being our sponsor. Monica? Yes, the closing CEU code is, CEU code is five two. Three two two. Again, it is five two three two two.